Thanks for tuning in to our 26th episode of Dementia Dialogue, a recent interview I had with Mary Beth Whiten. Mary Beth lives on the shore of Lake Huron with her partner Dawn, not far from their daughter Brianna and her year-old son Finley. Mary Beth is co-chair of Dementia Advocacy Canada, Canada's leading advocacy organization led by persons with dementia and their care partners. You may have listened to our town hall episode on human rights and dementia that Mary Beth co-hosted. Today, our conversation centers on Mary Beth's recent book, Dignity and Dementia, Carpe Diem. Thank you for uh, you know, agreeing to participate in this interview and more so thank you for taking the effort to put your journal together into mm. a book form. That's not without challenges, yeah. No. To, <laughs> so thank you for having me though. Yeah, to get it organized and then, uh, you know, do. I'm sure you had to do some editing just to make sure that it was uh, crisp for people and uh, clear. You don't, you know, mistakes can undermine your credibility. So uh, I congratulate I you on that. I just did a spell check and kind of grammar check on it. And that's all I did because I wanted to leave it as I wrote it so that, you know, someone didn't come in and polish it all up and shine it and because that that wasn't how I wrote it that's not how my mind was thinking so it, it really I just wanted to give it in case I was using the wrong word or I was actually when they first read it the publisher said you know you're first you say this and then you then you say it's that and it's like well that's my dementia <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah you know sometimes yeah. I say I'm uh, I don't know, 54 years old. And other times I say I'm 53 years old. And oh, okay, okay. So the inconsistency, and I said, well, no, we got to keep that. Yeah, okay, okay, that's interesting. Because a couple of times I noted, I wasn't so much about chronology, but sometimes the same uh, thing might be repeated. Mm -hmm. not, not word for word, but, you know, the same kind of image, memory, I, you know, perhaps of one of your great uncles or something, I think is one of the examples. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I wondered about that, but I, I now see that it was just, you wanted the, to share the raw material as it were. Yes. Yeah, yep. yeah. So the okay. repeat of uh, uncle, great uncle Horace. Or... <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Mary Beth, I was interested in the very, um, you know, first few pages of the uh, book, you were writing for an audience. You knew that somebody other than yourself and Dawn or, you know, your immediate circle was going to read this mm -hmm. at some point. And I'm wondering, were you keeping a journal before the time of your diagnosis or did it, did it kind of kick in at the same time as you were diagnosed? No, I've never had a journal. I've never had a diary. I never wrote. I never thought I could write. You know, it just, it wasn't in something that I inspired to do by any means. And it was uh, Lisa LaSalle who said, you might want to consider writing your thoughts down as you go through this journey. And she was the first person who said that to me. And so I just started to do that. And all of a sudden I realized that I can I can actually put something on paper fairly quickly and it makes sense yes. and it feels good. 
and so that's really kind of where it started. And initially, I started to send out my stories to very immediate family. And everybody talked to, you know, I always enjoyed hearing the responses because they were very individual responses, you know, it was more than, you know, great article. It was, they were communicating with me how it affected them. This was very powerful to get the type of uh, information back. And then I would hear, you know, would you mind adding this person on your emailing list and that person on your emailing list? And so the email list got to be at least over 100 people fairly quickly. And also the Alzheimer's societies started picking up on it. And so they were putting it on their web pages um, to, you know, offer person tried and true, you know, communications. Yeah. And also Mayrep at that time also was putting on, it's on its websites. When I was in the midst of actually writing it, I wasn't thinking of, you know, it's gonna go to hundred people. I was very much thinking when I read it to Dawn, because Dawn always got the first read, how will she respond to it? I want to go to the, um, not so much the incident of the diagnosis, but your reflection afterwards about making a conscious choice to turn your back on a sense of anger and disappointment and frustration that might accompany a diagnosis like the one that you experienced. And maybe you had felt some of that in that interlude between the onset of your condition and the final diagnosis. But really uh, making a choice uh, to live your life positively, to embrace dementia as it were, and then to try and live as fully as you were, as you are able to with the diagnosis. I'm wondering how you might think we could help more people to make that positive choice in their life. You know, and so many people before me have said this, which is it, it really does matter at that point of diagnosis, what's communicated. And we're not doing it right. You know, we still need to improve the point of navigation at, in which uh, when the doctor is actually stating you, this is the disease that you have and the work that needs to be done to help improve how that's said to that person, you know, which is, as we well know, instead of all the negative, go home and get your affairs in order. It's rather, you know, you have this disease but you have a whole lot of living left to do. And until we start using more positive words, more positive examples, then people living with dementia will, it's that much harder to make that choice of living, living better with dementia. And so I think we uh, read at that navigation point with the doctor, we can do a lot to help that. And also just to help the person meet someone else, like almost literally right off the hop. Here's so-and-so and they're gonna give you a call. And one of the things that I remember looking for was I wanted to talk to someone who had a diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia. And I asked that and I said, well, can I talk to someone? Well, nobody knew anybody. So there wasn't that ability to connect me to a peer and I think if we could start to connect people to peers immediately, 
then it's less likely they're going to get onto the, you know, Googling and find out all these terrible things, but rather they're going to hear it from the person themselves that, you know what? Yeah. Not a great diagnosis, you know, sorry yeah. that you're in the game with us. However, yeah. and that, that piece, however, is so important, you know, and to have a demonstration in front of, you know, I've been living with dementia now for, you know, eight, seven years or eight years. It has its bad days, but boy, it has a lot of really good days. That's interesting. Then the peer-to-peer -peer aspect, I think, is really something uh, unique. You know, there's, for example, the first link program or other kind of programs that might create better linkages at a professional level, if you will, or at an or at a service level. But it really doesn't go to the point of making that peer connection that you're suggesting yeah. today yeah well i think it it already is quasi ignore or quasi um, um done uh through advocacy organizations like uh dai dementia yes. alliance international and they do a good job the challenge is it's at the connection time how do we connect people who just received diagnosis to appear that's that's what seems we seem to be having a whole lot of trouble with so if we're you know getting a call to uh the alzheimer's society for instance to call me who just got new, new, newly diagnosed why can't we make one more phone call yeah you know we have a database full of volunteers i wanted to go on to um Another issue, being in a uh, same-sex relationship with Dawn, yeah. uh, being, I was impressed in your book how totally natural you were in describing that relationship. And I think as, as you talked about, uh, you know, your initial kind of circle of people were people that you were in your family, people that were close to you, right. I can certainly understand then how the roots of that uh, tone of your journal, you know, was in the support of your family and mm -hmm. of your relationship. I'm thinking, though, on the other hand, that it's not easy to, you know, develop a relationship with somebody and to create a sense of acceptance within your circle. It's not easy for a lot of people. Mm. I'm wondering if you saw a connection maybe uh, between the way you and Dawn uh, resolved to form a relationship and to share it with other people, to be open about it, to invite other people into your life, whether that was kind of practice, if you will, for how you responded to the diagnosis of uh, FTD? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I've never really thought about it as how we may have learned from just, you know, being being out there as two women and how that might apply to being out there with uh, um, dementia. You know, someone once says, well, now you have to come out twice. And, yep. you know, if you think about it, that's, that, there's a lot of truth to that coming out twice. So with Don and I, we just, we have never lived a different way. You know, when we uh, became partners and it was just, it was just, this is what life is. This is normal for us. And so I don't 
feel like we have to tell people because it's just we acted this particular way. And then I, I, I know we like Brianna would get questions. Well, what do you mean you have two moms? And then it would be kind of, well, we just always told Brianna, whatever's comfortable for you, Brianna, those are the words you're going to say. You know, you don't have to call me mom. You don't have to call me anything. And, and so I think as a family, we, do, we learn to be sensitive to labels, to not calling people certain things or to be calling people certain things. So I think that whole label thing, um, you're right. We probably, not even thinking about it now, but probably learned a lot about the challenge and the impact a label can have on people. And uh, because we just, we don't like to label people. Thinking back to the title of the book, Carpe Diem, uh, you know, that sort of, well, this is, you know, this is life. This is our life. And we're going to, yeah, we're going to live it uh, the way we want to live it. Yeah. And and where that came from was uh, one of my nieces, they came up to visit. I think it was the first or second time that since I had a diagnosis that um, they came to visit me from kitchen her from Sarnia and this was my great niece and so she came in and she had this painting and you know presented it to me and you could just tell she was beaming with pride and just couldn't wait to give it to me and you know beautiful excuse me and I said well I don't know what this means what does carpe diem mean and that's that's how I learned that oh, carpe okay. diem means you know live for today for you shall never trust tomorrow and what it may yeah. bring, and it was you know made by uh, I think it's a Homer comment, and as soon as she said it, you know we all just looked at each other. We knew that was going to be our family motto. Yeah. That's a lovely uh, story about how a younger woman, you know, gives you something and gives you more. And she really realized she was giving you. Well, I think that goes back really to being open to any type of learning from whomever. And that that's an important thing for us as well. You know, it doesn't matter what age you are, color you are, or what your beliefs are. Um, we can always learn from each other. Yeah. It's when we start saying, you know, putting parameters around that, that's when we, uh, that's when we lose that opportunity. So, yeah, we're, very thankful actually to her yeah. for helping us lend lend a, a way to our living. I wanted to explore um, the spirituality because it was it's a thread that you know is in your book in, in many different ways, both speaking directly about spirituality, but then I also think of your reflections uh, on Remembrance Day and your your uh, ancestors and and people that fought, you know, in the wars and and otherwise your discussion about your grandmother coming from Scotland and that Haiti trip for me was, I think, a, a moment in my young life where it really impressed upon me how fortunate I was that I lived where I lived, that I am who I am. It was a, a, a moment for myself. And I always believed that I thought it was going to go back to Haiti. And, um, you know, it drawn me to it. The people draw me to it. There's a smells of Haiti that I will never, ever forget. You know, oh. the smell of death. 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I can remember that in that very moment. And I'm wondering how my, you know, simple little chocolates that I brought along can help, help someone help them. It was definitely, it was eye opening and it's truly a, a life, a lifetime of impression yeah. of that. Yeah. I'm wondering if you might think of the connection between your advocacy and spirituality. You're, you were talking at one point a, a little bit about your mom and her work in the, I mean, a, a mother of eight, she worked herself, <laughs> uh, but she still had time and energy for uh, working in various community groups or church groups, you know, to help other people and how you really um, valued that gift that she gave to you. I'm wondering if you might you yourself see a connection between your advocacy work and your spirituality, your kind of roots in Christian uh, tradition. I was taught at a young, young age and shown by examples of what advocacy was. And I, I can remember sitting in a church booth when I was very small, maybe four years old, and the church was making the point that due to the poor wages of the grape pickers in the States, yeah. we were to not eat any grapes. And so this was said to the uh, parish. And so I've, I'm, I have a very vivid mind of thinking about we as a collective group can support each other by collectively standing up for what's right. And that's what I was, was taught. And then, um, you know, my, my mom, just did, didn't matter how busy she was. You know, she was always there to help somebody. And what was very important for her was that she was not recognized for it. It was not meant for her to go in and say, you know, I did all these things today. But to be, um, I forget what the word is, but just, um, you know, it's just done quietly and softly. Humble, and humble. kind of humble. It's very, it's, yeah. it's humble. Yeah. And um, so... Yes, I think the spirituality of all that definitely does intermingle. And I am spiritual, you know. I um, I really enjoy those quiet times and soft times. Sometimes it's now with my grandson when he's, uh, you know, he's lying on my chest and he's sleeping and he's got that little soft breathing going. Like yeah. I just think, holy. You know, I, I think that up until the diagnosis, their minds are so busy and they're so stressed and they're, it's just noise, right? And it's loud and it's um, overwhelming. And until you can get to a place where you can soften all the noise that's happening in your mind to then have the ability to rethink things and think about things and, and recognize that you're not in last stage, but rather very much at the beginning of the stage and physically I'm strong and physically I'm this. And so it's that, it's the ability then that I can play a part in so, social justice. But it's, it's really, it's like your mind has to have that time to be able to figure it out mm -hmm. almost. That's kind of where the journal ends in a sense mm -hmm. is where you're maybe uh, saying, I'm going to take some time here to rebalance 
Yeah. Is, is that maybe the, the right word to rebalance your life so that you've got time to do that kind of reflection and uh, not self in the sense of selfishness, but you know, nurturing yeah. people around you yeah. uh, versus kind of the political action that was so much a part of your life in the last part of the last decade, I guess. The funny thing, I think uh, I may not be as busy, but it seems like the things that I'm doing are even that much more strategically important, uh, if you will. So, you know, I'm on the ministerial advisory board to the, the health minister. You know, I just finished a conversation with uh, dementia advocacy uh, leaders from across Canada because we're going to be sitting down with the minister for a one hour meeting. So incredible opportunities that I think has come along because of the time I put in, because of the relationships and the projects that I've been a part of all that busy, busy time earlier. But now it's a much more, I can kind of pick and choose where my weight I yes. throw behind it. And, um, but I am tired. At the end of the day, you know, I, I had to ask Don today if I had lunch. <laughs> so although I may look physically well, the, uh, the brain is definitely tiring. Yeah. You know, we're, we're seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I, I'm stubborn. <laughs> so I don't necessarily like being to ask for help. And um, I'm learning to ask for help now. Yeah. And I'm learning to ask for help actually from, you know, other people with dementia saying, you know, we need a couple of volunteers. Where before I would just get the work done. And now I, I, I'm struggling with it. I'm not able to think as quick, think as clearly, forgetting things. So I, it's uh, more of, um, I'm just relying on my peers more now. Yes. Well, I think that's important. That can be in itself uh, an opportunity for growth, can't it? I think Reach it's a people. great opportunity for growth when, again, I think about the meeting that I'm just coming from. So there's uh, eight of us across Canada uh, who are Dementia Advocacy Canada people. And, um, you know, one of the things that I can do is I can help as a mentor. And that's what I see my role as being going forth is, you know, let other people fight the fight, but I can at least provide some guidance. I want to uh, ask you about your kind of take on the situation of dementia uh, within the Canadian context in terms of the uh, achievements that have been made. Have they produced the results you were hoping for? We've experienced this huge uh, tragedy in long-term care connected, you know, 80 or 90% of the people who died were people with dementia. How do you see the Canadian dementia advocacy scene at the moment? In two words or less. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's with this meeting that I just had, you know, we're talking about bubbling things up, the very most important things to try. So when we talked with the, the health minister, we were hitting the top two. And it's incredibly difficult to try and do that because there's so many issues 
as it relates to the national dementia strategy that we feel are not being met and are not having the weight behind them that they need to. So it's, it's a failure in many ways. And, um, it, and that's, a, that's a hard thing to say, but it's important that we use the opportunity, a dreadful opportunity, but we use it and we say, okay, we now have very clear science evidence of what can happen when you stick people in a very small room and call it long-term care. So first of all, let's get dealing with just simply housing and whether you have dementia or not, it's not healthy. And to be calling people's homes beds in itself, I think really tells Canadian society a lot on how they're they're being um, treated. You know, we need to get 10,000 more beds. No, that's 10,000 more homes that you're getting, not beds. So there's, we have to figure out how we can get this off, this idea away from just putting money to making more long-term care to putting money into homes. So that's the first one. And the second one is obviously if we have 80% um, of people now that have died within uh, long-term care, we have a very serious issue. And putting people behind locked doors, I just, I can't even, I can't even fathom that we are still doing that, frankly. You know, this is 2021, 22, 21. And when was the last time that we started locking up people with a disease? Like what other disease gets locked up? So why is it okay for people living with dementia to be locked up? I, that is a human rights issue in all in its entirety. And it's, um, people just don't want to look at it. It's easier just not to bring it up, not to be part of the conversation, say it's in the best interest of them and you know make up all these things. And until society truly stands up and says, this is wrong, it's going to continue to happen. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've got any kind of last thoughts that you might uh, want to offer a listener around the, you know, the work that you've done, the work that you see that needs to be done. I think some of the, the important things that I've learned that to share with others is don't let others tell you how to live your own life. Make the decision yourself how you wish to live your life and go do it. And so all of the different things that you're told, you can't do this and you shouldn't be able to do that, ignore them, just simply ignore them. And put in a lot of effort to making yourself the most positive person that you can. So sometimes it's being an advocate, sometimes it's you know being a painter, whatever it is in your life that makes you feel good, do it do it well and expect, expect something of yourself. Like, so what? You got dementia. You know, there's worse things that we could have. But when you put on an expectation of yourself to be the best person that you can, then you can hold yourself accountable. And I think that's important. So I think those are, you know, I guess my final thought is uh, don't forget to live carpe diem. Well, thanks very much. This has been, I, I really enjoyed um, reading your journal. I, I felt as if I was 
you know, getting to know you better. I, I wish in retrospect when we were able to be more physically present to one another that uh, we didn't have time to talk about some of the things that we're talking about today. Dignity and Dementia Carpe Diem can be purchased through your local bookstore or online. You may be lucky enough to win a copy by writing dementia.dialogue at lakeheadu.ca. Please put Carpe Diem in the subject line. Watch for our next episode, the second in our new series on spirituality, hosted by the Reverend Faye Forbes and Lisa Loisel. To ensure that you don't miss it, you can subscribe to our podcast for free on most podcast platforms. Thanks again to Mary Beth for being our guest today. Our institutional sponsor for Dementia Dialogue is the Centre for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University. The Public Health Agency of Canada provides some financial support. My name is David Harvey.